0: Yeah.
1: My name is matteo we're glad to have you here uh we're gonna be talking on the brother's trek about today about a taste of armageddon it's gonna be fun but as always i'm not doing this alone i'm doing this with the brother so say hello ken
0: i i would say peace and long life but this is a pretty dire episode for uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we should everybody that's so
1: true <laughs> well Before we get into this episode, the first thing is I want to say uh, last week I said that I didn't remember this episode, but I was totally wrong uh, because I totally remember this episode. And oddly enough, this actually stands out from my childhood because, you know, it's funny because even as a kid, you can sort of understand the insanity of this situation, right? Right. You know, and, uh, you know, you can feel that uh, what these people are doing with the disintegration machines and all that stuff is basically wrong in some sense. The problem is, and I don't know if this comes from being the middle child, you know, the mediator, or if this comes from my uh, EST, FP, whichever one I am, uh, you know, but I, I'm always good at understanding both sides of an argument. So especially in this episode, when you like, I, I see where you're coming from with your craziness and the disintegration machines. Mm-hmm. But you're not learning the right lesson here, you know what I mean? Right. Which is obviously the what Kirk goes on to say at the end of this much more eloquently than probably me as a ten year old. But uh, but you know that's part <laughs> If you think about the fact that this show was you know written basically for kids almost ish in back then, uh, you know that it's it's interesting that even me. As the not brightest of all uh, kids, in, uh, as a 10 year old, even understood what was going on in this episode. So, I um, will go, I'll start by saying this that I think that this is a very expertly written episode. I think that uh, we'll get into it more and more deeper as we get into the show, but there's just a lot of things along the way where you're just like, oh, this is like, it's just so like, it's not only eloquent in the dialogue, but especially like the opener and so much of the show was written in just the perfect television format. You almost wish that this was their template for every episode because I just think it's so well written. But again, we'll get into specifics as we get there. So the writer of this episode is Robert, uh, Robert Hamner. He had written a lot of episodes of TV in the past, uh, uh, even for uh, both Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry. This episode was conceived by Hamner because at the time in Vietnam, napalm was being dropped uh, in an effort to burn the Viet Cong out of the jungles. So these men, the men at this point are dropping, you know, napalm without ever seeing the faces of their victims, you know, or hearing their screams or at this point had become so impersonal. And so uh, that was kind of the take that Hamner had started when he started uh, writing this episode. Uh, Hamner says at, uh, at the time the military was developing neutron bombs and these were designed to kill people without harming any buildings. It was like the big business of war, you know, don't destroy the factories. Let's just kill the workers. And I thought that it would be terrible if a neutron bomb were being developed. It would take all the devastation out of the war and just leave the death, which is exactly the whole idea for the script I had when I walked into Gene Kuhn's office. So... That's kind of the writer's take on this.
0: Although the, the moral of the story is that the real tragedy of war are the deaths, that that's the thing that Kirks wants to prevent. He's like, what, well, you're losing three million people a year? That's insane. You can't do that. He objects to one person walking into the disintegrator chamber.
1: That's true, but I think that, you know, in his big speech, he talks about how, like, you know, you've taken the horror, the disease, the poverty, all of that stuff out of the war. And so you have made it just this very, like, streamlined thing that it should be.
0: Yeah, they've they've made it antiseptic. And the thing that makes it feel clean is there's only one price to pay. It's enormous. People have to Mm -hmm. kill themselves. But it's just this one price, right? It's very clean. It's it's contained within this very small thing. So it's it's gigantic, gigantic leap. But it's it, that's it, one gigantic leap, and all the things that go on that they list the disease, the destruction, the privation. Those are that's the messiness, right? There's no. It's very hard to clean any of that up because mm-hmm. it's everywhere. It's coming at you from every direction. But in terms of the the moral consequences, all that stuff, the disease, the privation, is only bad because people suffer. And so if they've got this ideology that, well, we do this suffering, but it prevents all this other suffering, you could trick yourself into thinking it's okay, which is basically what they've done. So they've, in a sense, become captured by their, their philosophy or their ideology or their, their reasoning that by sacrificing themselves. And in a sense, that's what sacrifice is, right? You, right. You know, if, if you were to, like, sacrifice your cattle for a good harvest or, you know, whatever, you're engaging the exact same process.
1: Well, Stan Robertson at NBC was also impressed with this script. He wrote to Gene Kuhn, uh, this story idea has all the ingredients to be developed into one of the more outstanding Star Trek teleplays. The writer shows a great logical uh, imagination in setting up this alien society and in doing so, isn't he, subtly, almost by osmosis, getting across to viewers the very weighty message without being overly cerebral? The point he's he sinks home, of course, is a strong plea, plea for the uh, abolition of war. But this story, Although, like Return to the Archons, is what you know NBC was looking for.
0: What they really end up doing, of course, is making a strong case for mutually assured destruction.
1: <laughs> Explain that.
0: So, what what the whole gambit that Kirk goes based on, right, is that I'm going to prevent your, I'm going to disable your ability to, to survive this. So this was a question of like surviving a nuclear war, right? Once the Mm -hmm. Russians both launched Sputnik, which they did in the late, the late fifties and had, you know, a large number of nuclear weapons, it was very clear that nuclear war was no longer survivable, right? That this wasn't going to be an exchange of a few dozen weapons and then, like, well, you're out and you're done. And your delivery systems are basically limited to bombers. We were now living in a world of mutually assured destruction. If the war happened, the world would be destroyed. And this was kind of the thing that that made both sides step back. You have the Cuban Missile Crisis. You have, you know, the the Berlin Crisis. You have some of these things um, in which both sides kind of step back and it creates the openness which will eventually result in détente a decade later. And it's it's because of the mutual assured destruction that you, you get this. Both sides realize well that we can't play this game anymore. And so what Kirk does in the episode is he takes away their security. And he's like, Well, now now it's gonna be you're going your civilization will be destroyed. It won't just be, you know, three million Antarans are going to be killed. It's, you know, because that's what they're they're like, well, it'll be total destruction of our civilization. Everything will be destroyed. You're like, yep, that's what you got. Everything will be destroyed. And you'll do it to them, and they'll do it to you, and you'll both be wiped out. Well, have a nice day. (laughs) You know, basically. Good luck to you. Yeah, he's he's saying, you know, you basically have this one alternative, and that is detente. You can turn toward peace. But you don't get like the immediate abolition of war, which you get is this mutually assured destruction scenario that people have to work themselves through. In that sense, it's like right. the opposite of Dr. Law.
1: So early on in the uh, story process of this uh, episode, they, uh, the original story had them being uh, uh, hit by a bunch of meteors. And so the ship was like on its last legs and they sort of limped their way to the planet And then once they get to the planet and beam down, they find out about, you know, all this crazy war stuff that's been going on. Then, of course, Kirk decides he's going to interfere. Well, of course, after a couple of rewrites, you know, uh, Bob Justman, the producer, one of the producers is like, doesn't this go against our whole prime directive thing? Aren't we, should we be, you know, interrupting what these people are, uh, are already doing to themselves? So it's interesting because... The way then they change the story is that it isn't until Kirk's ship, you know, is in danger and his crew and the 500 people aboard, you know, become uh, in trouble, is that then they decide to step in and say, "Hey, hey, hey! Why don't you guys take a step back from all your silliness and uh, let's let's think this through?" You know. So I thought that was a kind of a nice little flip that they did on that.
0: It also means that basically, Kirking ends an interplanetary war for no higher purpose than to save his ship and his crew.
1: Which sounds very Kirk-like, of course. (laughs) So Hamner ends up doing uh, three more passes on the script. Gene Kuhn then gets a hold of it, and he decides, I think I need a little more time on this draft. So this is when a very interesting flip-flop happens here. Uh, SpaceEed at this point, is then ready to go. So if you look, there are many production things that has Spacey listed as 24 and Taste of Armageddon listed as 23, but in fact, in the production order, it is listed correctly, but they actually filmed 24 before they filmed 23, but just to keep everything clear, as far as paperwork goes, they just went ahead and kept the numbers the way they are. This was interesting because I even watched this episode on the DVD, and Space Seed comes before Taste of Armageddon, but it's still listed as number 24, and Taste of Armageddon is listed as 23, even on the DVD, which is weird. It's it's always been confused on which one was shot first, but uh, it's been proven due to uh, some of the clapboards that Space Seed was actually shot first and also aired first, so that's the confusion on that. Uh, but that was mostly due to the fact that coon said, hey, I really need to take another uh, couple of days on this. It's going to take eight or nine days for me to do this. And then, uh, uh, much like in the last episode, basically overnight, he gets a, he gets a, a rewrite on it and uh, finishes it up. Dated December 12th, 1966. Getting into some of our guest stars, as we often do on this show, we got Barbara Bagcock. Yeah, Babcock. uh, She was 29 when she was cast as Mia 3. She had worked on Star Trek once before, providing the voice for Trulane's mother in The Squire of Gothos. And then her voice is heard again in Assignment Earth and in The Tholian Web. So uh, she would also end up in Plato's Stepchildren, which is interesting. But uh, you had some stuff, too, on uh, Miss Babcock, didn't you?
0: Yeah, so she... She looks like kind of the quintessential Star Trek beauty. And okay. so, whether this is a function of kind of 1960s ideas of what is, you know, a be- what would a beautiful actress look like on your show, who would the huh. leading man fall for, or whether this was the particular tastes or preferences of casting director or producers or Gene Roddenberry, you see this look a lot. Right. So when we see her in this episode and then again in Plato's stepchildren, she basically looks identical, except that as a Greek, as a Plato's stepchild, she's got a little more curl in her hair.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And then I think she also bears a strong resemblance to to Joan Collins, the way we'll see her in uh, The City on the Edge of Forever, and uh, Jane Wyatt as Amanda Spock's mother.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And so I think they all are kind of, you know, representing a, what attractive would look like, both in the mid-60s and particularly to whoever was doing the casting on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we see she, you know, appears twice in the, in the show. We hear her voice all over the place. They must have liked her in addition to yeah. thinking that she was, you know, pretty to put on screen. Her career, I, I think. Well, you know, if you take Joan Collins for example, you think, well, "What do we know her from?" And it's Dynasty, Dynasty. right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that the same career arc happens to Barbara Babcock. So she'll do two, three, four television guest stars every year. You know, in the sixties mm-hmm. and the seventies, and by the late seventies, she starts getting more serious. She gets Salem's Lot, the movie. It's a TV movie, but uh-huh. you know, it's a serious. Uh, you know, thing. It's not just she's the nurse on Emergency, and she starts getting these substantial, supporting, recurring character roles, and that's what she does in the the eighties and the nineties. You know, she ends up being on Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman as a recurring character, and so it's interesting that these these women, you know, have this kind of late late success in their careers. I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it, it it's interesting how it, that seemed to happen a lot in the 80s where just these people who had, you know, been, you know, someone that people, you know, in the 50s and 60s suddenly, you know, burst onto the screen and suddenly, you know – I, I guess it was part of the baby boomer thing, you know, maybe with yeah. uh, stuff like Dynasty and all of that kind of stuff, where suddenly it's like, well, Joan Collins is still pretty. Let's put her on the air, and then you know, all these baby boomers will watch her because they remember her from this, that, and the other. Yeah. So it's I, it's I, funny too. Everybody oh, go gets her,
0: or she's you know she gets uh, reintroduced to a whole new generation. Or
1: yeah. So it's funny too, because another thing I've, I have been saying for a long time, I, I used to tell my, uh, I used to tell dad this when we'd look at like pictures of their yearbooks, you know, of him and mom and blah just that everybody, I always felt like everybody looked older, you know, even when they were 18, they looked like, okay, maybe they're in their twenties or, you know, they just, everybody looked older. And then if you take that a bit further and you think that like Jim Backus, when he was, you know, playing, uh, uh, uh the millionaire on Gilligan's Island was like 50. Right, you're like, how is this guy fifty? You look at like George Clooney, who's fifty, and you're like, they don't look. That is not the same comparative fifty years old. It's it, that's been a yeah, it's been a long-standing thing of mine for a while. And just to prove this point, Gene Lyons, who plays Ambassador Fox in this episode, you look at him, and you're like, okay, this guy's probably like fifty, you know, fifty-five, you know, maybe sixty. He was forty-five when he played this role. That guy does not look forty-five years old, you know. It's so crazy. I don't understand what I, – I mean, I guess people were living harder lives or something, yeah, or we've crazy. got it really easy now. So there is a, a
0: Geritol ad. It's a print ad, right? Okay. And, of course, what, what Geritol was selling was youth, right? Yeah. And this ad, they go, you know, you know uh, look, look at all these Geritol women and how great they look and so forth. And you look at these women and they all look really old to us. They Uh all look like their grandmothers and they're supposed to be in their forties. Right. Yeah. And you see, you know, like the, the the actual ages of these people. And we're like, Oh my God, you know, to us, they look ancient. Yeah. And here's an advertisement saying, no, no, these women are young. (laughs) It's, it's crazy how much that's true. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, part of its style. So one of the mm-hmm. things that we see about this character or this actress in both Plato's Stepchildren and in A Taste of Annihilation is how sophisticated she looks, yeah, right? Yeah. So her, her wardrobe, her hair, everything looks very sophisticated. And I think the same thing, you know, would be said of Joan Collins, sophisticated, um, of Amanda, Spock's mother, sophisticated. And that's one of the things that I think makes them look older, but... There's also this thing where they where people just look older.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. It's weird. Hey, speaking of, you didn't put your headphones on. You are correct. <laughs> I keep hearing myself come back to me, and I'm like, oh, "That's
0: weird." <laughs> Hailing frequencies are now open. You know, thing I, I did me. actually look for some kind of earpiece that would look like uh, what Uhura wore. Uhura's. Yeah, and they don't Not make Bluetooth. it like that. Yeah, you could get like a regular Bluetooth, but I would have to like affix the piece on there myself. And yeah nobody yeah. makes a, hey, look, it's a Hörer's Ear- earpiece as your Bluetooth device, which I think would be super cool. Yeah, they're, they're that'd, be a, the that'd be a market opportunity.
1: That would be a reach too. Like my favorite, my favorite kind of like uh, uh, T-shirts and that kind of thing are something that, like, if you look at that and somebody knows what it is. They're mm-hmm. like, ah, I know what that, but if they don't know what it is, then it just looks like a shirt with a weird thing on it, you know? Right. So that, that earpiece is the same kind of thing, too. It's like a deep cut. It's like, you really got to know a little bit something about the original series to know what that thing is. Uh, a couple more things to do before we jump into the episode itself. Uh, man, this guy's last name. I wish I would have heard somebody say it. David Opatachu the guy who plays a Mm -hmm. non-seven. He was originally considered by Gene Roddenberry for the role of Dr. Boyce in The Cage. So uh, that's interesting. Yeah, right? Would have been a little bit different Dr. Boyce for us then. James Doohan continues to rise in favor with both the producers and the network. And uh, we noticed that in this episode as uh, this is Mr. Scott's second turn as, uh, you know, temporary Mm -hmm. captain. He's still identified as the chief engineer and not lieutenant commander, as he will be in later episodes. But uh, his status has clearly changed with, uh, you know, Archon, Spacey to now Taste of Armageddon, where he is uh, all over the place taking charge of that ship.
0: They also take three distinct opportunities to give him some serious Scottishisms.
1: <laughs> yeah. He,
0: he wishes them a bonny journey. Yep, he, uh, he sure does. He he says something else in the middle, and then the third one, uh, when things really start to go sideways, he's like, "Well, the haggis is in the fire now." <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. Actually, he says that about himself. That's when uh, you know Fox is like, uh, yeah. "Hey, uh, you know, your name is gonna, you know, appear highly in my reports, you know, in a bad way." And he's like, "Well, my haggis is really in the fire now." <laughs> so I mean, Irish accent. I don't know what I'm doing. So, Scotty of me. Uh, uh, so Matt Jeffries, uh, talked a little bit about this episode because the way that, you know, MNR seven was written was, uh, you know, this super like futuristic, you know, high tech place. And it's funny because in, in the, and I don't know if this is, I doubt this is in the original version, but in the uh, remastered version, you see a, like a, um, a, a monorail running in the background at one point.
0: Which, as we know, but, you know The he, Simpsons, is, like, quintessentially the future.
1: That's right. Monorail, monorail. <laughs> uh, of course, so he says that, of course, the hardest part of working on the show was, uh, you know, the budget, obviously. And uh, that the biggest word he had to learn uh, to do anything on the show was compromise. You know, he'd say, usually what we'd wind up with was only a small part of what we would like to see. But, uh, you know, you have to go with the material you have available, the capabilities of the people working with you, time, money. Plus, you got to give a little for the lighting guy. you got to give a little for the cameraman and for the director. So the most difficult thing is to come up with something that you visualized on the budget and will also work with everybody else in the company. So sometimes when you get there to shoot, there's not a lot left of the original concept of the show, which is sad for poor Matt Jeffries. I could only imagine what he could have done with a little bit more money and time.
0: If he had discovery-sized budgets.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I keep thinking about the special effects we saw on that show and I'm uh, constantly blown away by them. It's so crazy. Well, I got nothing else right now, so I say we just get right to it. Let's get to it! Captain's log. Stardate. It's five-year mission. Stardate's 3192.1. We find ourselves on our way to NGC-321. The objective here is to open diplomatic relationships with the civilizations there, including MNAR-7. The Enterprise has already called ahead to say, Hey, we're coming to say hi to you guys. Uh, We're hoping you'll be interested in opening diplomatic relationships with us. But they get a message back that arrives code 710. This means under no circumstances are they allowed to go there. It uh, must be some kind of uh, prime directive thing. If they say they don't want to talk to us, then the Enterprise must respect those wishes. But Ambassador Fox says, uh, you're going to ignore that request. Kirk comes back with, but it's their civilization. Fox says, uh, thousands of lives have been lost because we don't have a treaty port in this system. Kirk says, but this could start a war. Fox says, well, I am prepared to take that risk. So Fox says he's going to use his power of command and tell Kirk to take orbit and leave the rest of him. Kirk calls the ship and s- tells everybody, we've got to be battle-, battle ready. We're going in peacefully, but peacefully or not, I want to be ready. Credits. So this is an interesting thing, right? We see this over and over
0: again, that some kind of civilian guy, I think we saw earlier, you know, someone... Who was interested in?
1: Uh, well, he was he delivering something? Delivering oh no, it was. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Medicine, he was yeah.
1: bringing something to a. Uh, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, and he, he tried to, you know, override and. Uh, no, no, my mission comes first. You have to do what I say.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh the the one where they go to the planet. The shuttlecraft crashes. Right. Yeah. Galileo Seven we just did it. Galileo Seven, thank you.
0: So there's that one, and we'll see more of that, right? These, these meddling civilian authorities who can come on here and and invoke some kind of higher you know principle, whether it's uh, you know the federation you know gave me these orders and they override you know whatever you're doing, or you know my orders come from the federation council and whatever. So we get this sense that one, there's civilian command, right? Uh-huh. And the same thing would be true if. If you know you had a State Department official and he was being carried from here to there on you know the USS Cincinnati or something, and the captain of the Cincinnati was like, "Well, we you know we really shouldn't know. Nope, nope, my orders come straight from the Department of State." Okay. And uh, it it doesn't it doesn't feel very good, right? Right. And so you have to wonder. On the one hand, is this just the fact that our protagonists? are officers of the ship and so anybody who gets in their way has to be an obstacle and it's merely how the story works we're not supposed to think anything beyond that or is there an idea that like the military is good and virtuous and they're always doing the right thing and the good thing and the noble thing and the civilian authorities are corrupt or vainglorious or They don't know what they're doing. They're incompetent. They're crazy. So, you know, like, which is it? Maybe a little of both. And then you also get this sense, uh, you know, of the, the Federalist conundrum, right? So all of the founders, American founders who had been part of the army, they all end up being Federalists. And they believe that trying to fight the war with the militia, undersupplied, no central government, no ready source of money was a bad idea, right? And they Fair needed enough. to support the military. And mm-hmm. so you get Washington and Hamilton and and Knox and all these guys who had, who had served in the war thinking we need to be able to properly fund the military and have a professional force that's capable and not just rely right. on, on militia. And you get that sense as well, right? Right. That, that the Starfleet needs to do what Starfleet needs to do. And it needs to have the resources that it needs to have. And these people coming from someplace else and thinking that Starfleet is is there to shuttle them around or take them from here to there or merely serve as a courier service is a totally misguided approach.
1: Well, what else are you going to do with all those big ships that are flying around? I mean... <laughs> They're already on their way there. What else? I mean, geez. <laughs> Back to talking about the writing, as I like to in this episode. Uh, this is um, this opening scene, you know, really sets down the story. You know, sets the story. We already know everything we need to know before we really launch into, you know, the full head-on of the story. You know, we got Fox, who is already a complication in the story, right? we're going to do it his way or, you know, it's not going to be done. We got Kirk who's already fighting for like, uh, we just got to leave these people alone. But, you know, you uh, know, let them do their thing. You know, we know that the planet doesn't want to, for some reason doesn't want any outside meddling. You know, we also have the Federation who, at least according to Fox is saying, uh, hey, we got to do this. This is the most important thing. We don't care about your ship or anything else. This is like, we need to get this done. So, you know, I think, again, super tightly written. Everything we need to know comes out right at the beginning. And so, you know, we're ready to launch now full on into the story when we come back from the commercial, which we do. And when we return, uh, they are in standard orbit a half day later. Kirk intends to visit the planet on his no, on his own first, well, with a security team, but, you know, on, uh, without Fox, to see what kind of reception they're going to get. Fox doesn't like it, but he uh, relents. This is where Scott wishes them a bunny trip. We, go, we beam down to the planet. There's this like nice matte painting of the city, which I think looks great. Very pretty. And uh, yeah. Beautiful and then, screensaver. Uh, exactly. And then uh, we are uh, greeted almost immediately by, uh, speaking of beautiful, a beautiful blonde in uh, almost a beehive, but a very 60s, not quite beehive, but a very high 60s hair. I believe there's a picture of Mom with this haircut. Actually, Kirk immediately turns on the charm. He like sees her, and he like the music plays, and he gets that kind of like half smile on his face. You're like, okay, <laughs> Kirk's ready. Uh, she asks them why they beamed down, knowing that they were not wanted here. Kirk says, "Well, I had orders." She's like, "But it's dangerous here." Kirk's like, "Well, I don't see any danger." She changes the subject and then offers them some hospitality and then is, brings them uh, in front of the high council. Kirk asks to establish diplomatic relations, but uh, they say no. When Kirk asks why, he's told because of the war that has raged for 500 years. We find out that they've been at war with the third planet in the system and that the Enterprise is in danger for just being there. Oh no. But Spock points out there has been no evidence of war. Both planets are strong and prosperous. But then suddenly the planet is under attack. The council adjourns. The crew watches watches the war room as the, as the attack unfolds. And boom, there's a hit right in the middle of the city. But there's been no boom. No tremors are felt. No radiation detective. What is going on? Detective? Detected. And uh, yet we don't quite know because uh, something else mysterious happens. They speak to each other and they say, Oh no, it has happened again, just like 50 years ago. Didn't we just hear about a ship that had visited here 50 years ago and yet we don't know what happened? The Valiant! Weird. The Valiant! Anon, comes, Anon Seven comes out and calls it a vicious attack. Half a million people have been killed. Spock quickly gathers, putting all the evidence together by tricorders and whatnot that this all must be have been done by computers. Well, Yes. Anon says, we find out that people are being theoretically killed by the computer and that uh, they must report to the disintegration machine. Spock says, oh, well, there is a nice logic to it. Anon is uh, is happy he approves, to which Spock (laughs) replies, oh, I don't approve. I just understand. Then Anon 7 tells them, I'm sad to tell you that once in orbit around our planet, your ship became a legitimate target. It has been classified destroyed by a triboat Colt satellite explosion. All persons aboard your ship have 24 hours to report to our disintegration chambers. Dun, dun, dun.
0: Do you remember the conundrum? The conundrum? Yeah, this is the episode where the Enterprise-D gets hit by some beam, and everyone, you know, like, falls out of the chair. When they wake up, there's this new cast member who's the executive officer. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And when they attack that enemy base that he wants them to attack, they have tricobalt weapons.
1: <laughs> oh, do they really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. What a and, great and reference. Like,
0: yeah, so they're all like, tricobalt weapons. And like, how, how many, and it's like the, the big question Picard asks is, like how many how many joules does it, does the, you know, data give us some figure of how much energy capacity it has. It's like, yeah, I think we can blow it up with like three torpedoes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can really take care of this thing. That's amazing. So during this speech, one of uh, Kirk's red shirts goes for his gun, but then Kirk waves him off. Like, don't do it, don't do it. But then once we find out they're going to be held in custody to make sure that their ship obeys, then Kirk goes for his phaser. But it's a bit too late at this point. We'll spare your ship, but your passengers and crew are already dead. Dun, 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 dramatic line as we go to commercial. Act one down. The setup is up. We've got to protect the crew now. Back at it. In quarantine, Kirk demands Mia uh, lets him speak to Anon. She says he is busy developing the casualty list. To which Kirk replies, well, there'll be more casualties if he doesn't come in here and talk to me. Uh, We find out that Mia is on the list as well. Oh, no. Here, she lays out the reasoning of, of, of what's going on in this war. If I don't report to the machine... Then Venikar, the third planet, would have to respond with real weapons and more damage and more bet or more deaths. Oh. Back on the Enterprise, Bones and Spock, <laughs> Spock, Scott, as acting captain, receives a message from Kirk saying d- d- diplomacy is on and hey, uh, why not come down for some shore leave for the entire crew? It'll be great. We cut back down to the planet and we find Anon is using some sort of machine or else he is the... Uh, or the rich little of this planet. (laughs) You're probably one of the few people who gets that joke, but it's okay. (laughs) So fake Kirk tells Scott, uh, hey, it's an order. I want those people coming down here right now. But Scott doesn't believe it for one bit. He runs the voice through the, anal, uh, through the computer analyzer and finds out that it wasn't Kirk at all. 98% chance it was being used by some sort of machine. Down like on the this. planet. In the, in the plot. So you present
0: this problem, but they resolve it really, really quickly and move on. Instead uh-huh. of having like a whole, you know, seven minutes in between commercial in which they all sit around and like, Does he want us to go down? I don't. It seems so odd. Why would we go down? We just arrived. We don't know what the situation is. You know, and and you had this whole, like, and then finally at the end, they kind of like, yeah, I don't believe it. Let's just, like, think it's fake, I guess. Yeah.
1: Plus, (laughs) he wants us to send down the whole crew. And then, like, the M&R people are going to come up and, like, cover the ship. I don't trust any of that.
0: Yeah. It's all goofy. But they dispense with it right away. He walks over and goes, Computer? Validate this and his computer's like invalid. He's like, All right, we're done, moving on. <laughs> Thank no god, wires.
1: it's so true. Uh, down on the planet, we see that Kirk and Spock are up to something. He's like, Do you, you sure this is gonna work? And Spock's like, I'm pretty sure. After all, we Volcanians have limited telepathic abilities. Okay, oh great. So I thought that was just a crazy mud reference that he called <laughs> them Volcanians, but apparently not. Even Spock is calling them Vulcanians.
0: That's right, which makes you think that in Discovery, they must still be called Vulcanians. So why are they wreck oh, yeah. and calling them Vulcans?
1: I know, damn it. <laughs> Ruining all the continuity of the show, Discovery. Chase.
0: Right. They should be Vulcanians until sometime in the future.
1: He starts and like, what
0: about the Romulanians?
1: <laughs> the Romulanians. I <laughs> love it uh so Spock goes to the door and he starts pressing his hands up against it uh he tries to make the guard open the door and he does and as soon as the guard opens the door they attack him and then off they go uh they turn a corner and they see uh the one of the disintegrators at work then they run into mia who is on her way to the disintegrator you're not going in there says kirk out of nowhere because why does he care Spock Spock goes in to take out the guard at the disintegrator and he walks up and he says there's a multi-legged creature on your shoulder. I love that. (laughs) Then they stand back and uh, blow up the chamber. Anon hears about what Kirk and Spock have been up to and decides it's time to take out the Enterprise. So he calls in the orders and says shoot him with everything you got. These are the orders of the council. And another dramatic line to go out on commercial. I love
0: but it. But once again, they resolve this problem right away. Uh-huh. Because Scotty had already anticipated this problem and had moved the Enterprise into a higher orbit.
1: Well, no, not yet. He, he, here, he just put—he just has the shields on. Okay. He moves it in later when Spock tells him to go into a higher orbit. Yeah, so I, I, I yeah, like he, that, that you have these
0: incidences where we pose a threat and the ship counters it and we move on with the plot.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like that too. But yeah, let's get into more character and uh, you know, plot yeah. than uh, yeah. all of this hemming and hawing over stuff. Back to it. Scott is giving us a captain's log. A whole day has passed. The the planet then suddenly fires on him. To to Paul confirms saying uh, To Paul, you know, saying, "Hey, they What? DePaul? T- it's DePaul. T- Not (laughs) Tapal. I thought he was the science
0: officer of the Enterprise.
1: Uh, No, he's the navigator on the Enterprise. Uh, He was also the actor, by the way, who played the fake Pike in Menagerie, just so we got that. So uh, we find out that they are using, uh, T'Pol tells us that they are using uh, sonic weapons against them. Luckily, uh, the screens are up. But uh, they can't fire back, according to Scott, because apparently you can't fire full phasers through the screens. Well, that's new. Uh, Fox, Fox uh, I, I comes onto the because, bridge. So Go ahead.
0: And this, is, this is merely based on having played Starfleet Battles and the way that the kind of problems presented by energy management make you think about right. stuff, right? Okay. And so... If you only have a certain amount of energy and you want to deploy it, do I deploy it to shields or do I deploy it to weapons? If you deploy everything to screens to shields, then we don't have sufficient weaponry to do big stuff. And so I think it's And an to energy- be fair,
1: and to ah. be fair, Scott does say we can't fire full phasers with our mm. screens up. He doesn't exactly say we can't fire phasers at all.
0: So I think, it's, I think they'd like, basically the argument is we put so much of the ship's energy into the, its defenses, there's nothing left for any offense. We're not in a balanced mode.
1: Yeah. So uh, Fox comes aboard the, uh, the bridge here and uh, takes over. This mission is more important than your ship, he says. And I was thinking, you don't tell that to Scotty. I mean, <laughs> he's, this guy loves the, the ship as much as Kirk does.
0: Well, see, I think with Kirk,
1: it's really the crew. Uh huh. You know, he protects his crew. Then the ship itself. Uh, then the ship itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, the ship's important, but it's the crew.
1: So yeah. ultimately,
0: Kirk is the kind of guy who, if you got to, if you got the crew off the ship, he would blow up the ship to kill a dozen Klingons.
1: <laughs> Weird. They should do that sometime.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it makes him sad, but not nearly as sad as, as Mister Scott.
1: Very true. Very true. Scotty talks about firing back. I could give them a couple of fo- photon torpedoes to take care of. There I go with my Irish <laughs> again. Whatever. Uh, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> already, Scotty. But Fox tells them not to fire back. Back on the planet, Kirk goes back to their quarters. He tries to get Mia to help him. "I want to stop the killing," he says. Mia finally relents and lets and uh, gives him a, uh, a map of the uh of the of the of the 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 capital i don't know something in the council room uh they realize that they can't hurt the enterprise and they are behind on their quota but instead of explaining anything to their enemies why not just call you know vaneker and just be like hey listen we got these new people here they're causing a problem they're supposed to die they don't want to die we're having some problem taking care of uh Getting our quota up to date, I promise we'll get to it, but we got to take care of these crazy people first. No, that's not what he does. He instead decides to call the Enterprise and talk to Fox. Um, Anon and Fox talk it out. It was all a mistake, says Anon. Uh, Take your screens down and we will receive you. And then he mutes the communique and said, as soon as their screens are down, we're going to blast them. <laughs> what, a, what a awful man Anon is. Then Scott and Fox go uh, go at it over the screens. you know uh, uh, Fox is like, you're gonna let down those screens as a show of good faith and Scott says, not until the captain tells me to take him down. So you know let's uh, discuss this for a moment, you right? Who's in the right here, you know Scott? Saying uh, we got to protect the ship, no matter what, and until Captain Kirk himself tells me that uh, we're gonna let down the screens as a show of good faith, am I gonna do it? I'm not gonna listen to you, crazy Fox, or is Fox right here as the diplomat saying like this is a show of good faith? We got to do this, otherwise we're never gonna get these people on our side. What are your thoughts here, sir? I think Fox is clearly wrong, but okay. he has the legitimate authority
0: to to do this thing. Yes. So, Mister Scott who is correct that we should not lower our screens in front of these people who have already lied to us and taken the captain hostage and so forth, or presumably taken them hostage, has no authority to defy this guy who apparently can tell the captain what to do. Yeah. So in that sense, he has you know, thrown his haggis in the fire.
1: <laughs> As he was about to say.
0: But because he gambled correctly that, you know, this that this was ultimately the right thing to do, he, uh, he will pay no consequences for it.
1: That's true. Well, you know, too, this also reminds me of uh, The Last Jedi, as so many things lately have reminded me of Last Jedi, that, uh, you know, it's like the Admiral Haldo thing, right? It's like, she's the Admiral. She doesn't have to tell you what her plan is. She has a plan. You just have to have faith in it. I mean, to me, this whole that whole thing comes down to her line about, like, Leia saying, like, if you don't look for the sun at night. You're never going to see it in the day or whatever it is, whatever Holdo says that Leia always says, you know, that's what it actually comes down to is the crux is she's just trying to say, Hey, we need to hold on to hope here because that's what, that's what the rebellion really needs or the resistance really needs at this point. But still, you know, she also doesn't need to tell this crazy guy who just got demoted by the way that uh, what the plan is anyway, back to star Trek as always. Then, of course, here we've got uh, Fox saying, your name will figure highly in my report to, the, to Federation Central, or to the Federation Central is what he says, which I think is even funnier because it's like, first of all, what's Federation? They even later use you know United Federation of Planets, but here it's the, the Federation Central. I don't know what that is. Anyway, so Scott's Haggis is in the fire for sure. Then uh, we cut back down to the planet and Anon is making himself a drink. And then we see Kirk enter behind him. And Anon senses him too. He says, "You should try out Troba," which is funny because for a second I thought that was the same thing that Balok was drinking in that episode of. Manu- it's Tranya. <laughs> but that was Tranya, exactly. Interesting, all these like liquor that are named like Tranya and Troba and Train Truba. Station. I don't know. Trilo, Trilo. <laughs> right, exactly. Tril. So uh, Anand says his assessment of Kirk is true. You are a barbarian. And Kirk here sort of lets him think it, you know? He continues to use it as like his upper hand of like, yeah, I'm a barbarian, yeah, you just watch. I'll show you barbarian. Kirk demands the communicator to talk to the Enterprise. He goes, but you don't understand what our heritage is. It's a joint heritage. Killer first, builder second, then hunter. Kirk wants the communicators and uh, Fox says, you're trying to save your ship, but I'm trying to save my world. Then they share a drink, but as they share a drink, we see Anand hit a button, calling security to his place. Kirk continues to act tough, you know, trying to get his communicators out of Anon. Uh, Anand tells him that they're in the uh, high council room, or they're in the war room. And Kirk smartly doesn't trust him enough to let himself go out the door first, so he makes Anand go first. And then we see a guard there and he throws it on into the guard and then a fight inserts. He throws a guard down and another guard comes and he enters the fray and there's more fighting. And then boom, Kirk is knocked out two against one. You know, it's interesting for people who uh, don't f- fight an actual war, they still have some pretty good guards that uh, know something about security.
0: Well, maybe they have a problem where people don't like walk into the disruptor
1: thing or the disintegrator is often as we're led to believe they do. Uh, that's possible very possible you know it's funny here though because uh you know for all of kirk's bluster about being able uh, in the previous scene about being able to take down the planet himself you know like he says this unfortunately makes him look a little wimpy he can't even get past two guards you know he's dragged away as uh, we go to commercial back from the commercial fox beams down now did they lower the screens here so that he could beam down i mean i know they don't actually go into it nor do they have to tell us that they do that but did he beam down during the screens we don't know box there is greeted by anon who uh promptly sends him to the disintegrator to be killed because hey i'm sorry we got this quota we gotta fill up we gotta get more of your people down here but you're going sorry gotta go bye Spock then uh, gets his communicator working and he contacts the ship. He sends them into the high orbit at maximum phaser range, and then uh, leaves the room, but not before telling the yeoman to make sure that (laughs) that uh, Mia doesn't immolate herself. He says, "Spock finds Spock as he's about to be destroyed, uh, be uh, be put into the disintegrator, and Spock ends up destroying another disintegrator." Uh, Fox asks him, what are you doing? And Spock says, it's a peculiar kind of diplomacy. <laughs> Spock heads off to find the captain. But luckily, Fox guards has some kind of loose lips and told him on the way to the disintegrator where Kirk was. I don't know, that is kind of the only convenient, questionable plot hole in this whole episode. Uh, luckily, Fox was able to get that out of the guard. Anyway, Anand7 tells Kirk uh, in, the, in the high council room that if his people don't report to disintegration machine, he'll be destroying a mandate that goes back 500 years. Kirk tells him that his people are not responsible for that. Why should they disintegrate themselves? But Anand tells him that uh, they're going to, uh, horrible things will happen if this war starts again. This seems to frighten you, says Kirk. As it would any sane man, says Anand. Kirk says, uh, I, think, uh, I think Kirk is starting to make his point here. Anon then calls the Enterprise. but Kirk runs to the communicator first and says, order 24 in two hours if you don't hear from me before then. This apparently means that the Enterprise will destroy, uh, destroy the planet. Anon again tries to forward the Enterprise, but as per Spock's order, it is moved out of range. Uh, Vendikar then calls, and they are pissed. They think that uh, the planet is uh, reneging on the treaty. Then Anon finds out, Uh, Finds out that the other disintegrator has been killed. You have two hours, Anon. I will destroy the planet. Anon says, escalation is automatic. You can't stop it. (laughs) Stop it, says Kirk. I'm counting counting on it. it. (laughs) Exactly. Anon has lost his mind. He's in a heap. He's crying. What do I do? What do I do? And then, for some reason, this guard looks like he's going to walk up and console Anon. I don't know exactly (laughs) what the guard's doing here. (laughs) The only other plot hole I find in this whole episode. And then Kirk uses this moment and boom, he takes out all five of the guards now. Before he couldn't take out two. Now he's got five. He then starts to talk to the council, but then Spock rushes in. I assumed you needed help, he says. I see that I am in error. Death, destruction, pain, horror. This is what war is about. You've gone and made it neat and tidy. Kirk continues to tell Anon that he will uh, end the war for him by destroying the computer, controlling the war. He then does blows up the whole the whole computer, which, by the way, is the same computer that we've seen in like three or four episodes in the past. It's what he then tells Anon, they're big. What's that? It's, yeah, what yeah it's exactly. football, they're big, big boxes. But I'm saying it's the exact same computer. Uh, <laughs> he then tells Anon, I've given you back the horrors of war. Yes, councilman, you've got a real war on your hands. You, uh, you can either wage it with real weapons or you might consider the alternatives. Put an end to it, make peace. Anon, says, Anon Seven says, there can be no peace. Don't you see, we've admitted it to ourselves. We're a killer species. All right, it's instinctive, but that instinct can be fought. We're human beings with blood, a million savage years on our hands, but we can stop it. We can admit we're killers. But we can also say, we are not going to kill today. That's all it takes, knowing that you're not going to kill today. Contact Vendikar. I'm sure you'll find that they are just as appalled and scared as you are. Peace or utter dis- destruction, it's your choice, says Kirk. Great speech there. Speaking about how great and tight this, you know the script is, that speech is just like... Awesome, and that's all Gene Kuhn there, too, according to DC Fontana. He was the one who wrote that. Fox, even at this point, offers to serve as a diplomat. And that is how uh, the show ends there on the planet. Back on, this, back on the spaceship, Spock thinks that, that uh, this ending was a big risk. But Kirk says he knew it would work. I had a feeling. Spock says uh, a feeling is not much to go on. A feeling Mr. Spock is sometimes all we have to go on. Captain, you almost make me believe in luck. Why Mr. Spock, you almost make me believe in miracles. <laughs> and credits and that's the end of that episode. Another thing, sorry just to go back to Last Jedi real quick. This also makes me think of uh one thing that Ryan Johnson said about Luke uh Skywalker in The Last Jedi which is that um you know, the hard thing about Luke in this movie, of course, the one thing everybody's talking about is him, you know, people think that he ran away, but he's like, no, it's even harder than that. He is every day making the choice not to get in back into the galactic fight. Every day he's making the choice to let his friends suffer. But his beliefs are so strong that the Jedi should end that he continues to make that choice. And I thought that was uh, really profoundly put. Which, of course, is the exact same now for these two civilizations here, they have to now actively make the choice not to fight, right? It's just like Kirk says at the end of his speech. You have to actively pursue peace, turn against your instinct to fight, and pursue peace. So, kind of a connection there. Uh, A couple more things behind the scenes as we uh, wrap up this episode.
0: Although he throws Uh, that all away at the end of the movie, doesn't he?
1: Well, he does it because he, he... finally listens to yoda you know that it, because yoda says you've been learning the wrong long you've been learning the wrong lesson the whole time you know the lesson is actually like you should be teaching your students your failures not just you know all your amazing accomplishments too so in that case then he goes and he teaches ray he shows he makes ray the 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 next jedi he's like the jedi aren't going to end it's going to be ray now watch it's cool
0: so instead of being a coward who's running away or just a, a runaway guy, instead he's just been wrong the whole time.
1: Exactly. Well, he's been wrong since he decided to put himself in exile. Yes. Yeah. So James Pevney was the director of this episode. He's obviously done another, uh, a whole bunch of episodes in the past. He finished this one totally on schedule. Uh, they reused photographic effects. All of the Enterprise shots were stock footage that they had already used before. Uh, the matte painting with the landing party in the courtyard—that uh, was uh, that was the only thing that was new. But the show, as Robert Justman feared, thanks to a, a lot of rewriting and painful compromises, finished in six days. The price tag, however, was a bit high due to the construction required for the uh, MNR. Oh, we're on you, not on me. The price tag of this em- episode was one hundred ninety-six thousand four hundred eighty-six their budget of course for every episode is like 189. So the deficit continues to grow. It is now at a whopping $89,000 for uh for them to be over budget for the season.
0: Like a whole half hour of television.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. It's crazy. And uh that's it. The only other thing to tell you is, is that uh Taste of Armageddon held second place in the ratings uh the night that it aired. So uh so again, we see that all of that stuff we keep hearing about the ratings being the reason that Star Trek didn't make it, uh, again appears to be false, completely. Uh, anything else you got for this episode? I know we had talked uh, heavy early on uh, about you know some of the ideas behind the show, but anything else you want to hit?:
0: Yeah, so they have an interesting naming convention, right? Mia three, and what's the other guy's name?
1: Uh, Anon seven?
0: Anon seven. So, like, why do they have numbers in their names? Is it because she's Mia the third, her mother and her grandmother were Mia, or right. is it because they're clones? She's the third of the Mia variety?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Is
0: it, is it just because in the future, everything's numerical, yeah you know, or some kinda
1: of <laughs> <laughs> right like of- as we hear about the system, you know that yeah. that's at the beginning of the cnq423 or whatever it was
0: so i'm wondering you know, like why they have names and of course they are numbers in their names they never explain it but it leads you to some interesting you know what's going on there
1: yeah well maybe the, the you know part of the disintegrating thing you know of like there have been seven of my family killed or i don't you know who knows who knows some kind of weird convention All right, well, that does it for another fabulous episode of uh, Star Trek The Original Series and the less fabulous The Brothers Trek about. Uh, Next week, we got another big episode. It's Spock Falls in Love, and uh, the entire crew is drugged by a plant on this side of paradise. So, hey, if you want to come back and watch that amazing episode and hear what we think about that, the veiled idea that, you know, drugs are bad. Okay. Well, uh,
0: and, that's what and we're going to get pollen. next week.
1: It's a pollen problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Trust me, living in Austin, I know all about the pollen problem. All right. Uh, well, on that note, Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, find us everywhere on all the stuffs, the Facebooks, and uh, we have our own website, com. So you can see when we're posting and other fun stuff that's happening on both those pages check us out on soundcloud on itunes and on you know our website like i already said i'm an idiot let's move on hey i'm saying goodbye and of course from houston saying goodbye say goodbye ken live long and prosper that's right live long and prosper and we will see you all next week